Welcome to Two Old Bulls. My name is Tom, and I'm joined by my partner, Paul. Together, we have 75 years of combined sales and management experience. On Two Old Bulls, Paul and I will interview a variety of guests from all types of backgrounds. Our goal is to entertain, inform, and help you grow in whatever you do. So let's get started. Paul, what's going on? How are you doing, Tommy? Doing great on this Saturday morning. I already had a little minor crisis. The wife is freaking out on some vandalism, but she'll make it. She's a tough gal, and uh, she uh, was calling me, and I said, hey, you know, I'm getting ready to start this deal. So I uh, got through that, and uh, good seeing you. And uh, I know we talked this week, and you're killing me, man. I mean, uh, you won't tell me who the first guest is. You You actually booked it. And uh, I'm I'm just waiting in anticipation because you keep telling me this uh, gentleman is over the top great and you're all fired up. So give me some clues, man. Yeah, I'm going to give you some clues, see if you can guess who it is. And and, and in the end, uh, I think you're going to be really surprised that we were able to get a guest of this caliber. So I'm going to give you a couple clues here and see if you can guess first. One, this gentleman's an author. He's uh, had a successful acting career. He's been in a soap opera, All My Children. He's appeared in over 300 commercials, but he's most famous for sitting in a tent in only his shorts with a, a bunch of 40,000 mosquitoes and biting flies. And then also he does motivational speaking. Any guess? I remember the commercial. I just can't remember. I can't put my finger on the keep going. Well, I'm going to nail it down a little bit more for you. He had 11 years in the NHL with three teams. He was a captain. He was on two NHL All-Star teams. Now, this one's going to really nail it down for you. He has two Stanley Cup rings with the Philadelphia Flyer Broad Street Bullies. He has an excellent and successful broadcasting career that he did for ESPN and NHL. And he's considered one of the best. And it culminated last year by his induction into the Hockey Hall of Fame broadcast team. You should be able to guess now, my friend. Don't tell me uh, this guy wrote a book, right? I mean, he's got the book out there. Yep. yep. It, 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 I've read it. It's uh, you're, you're telling me it's Bill Clement. It's Billy Clement. Oh my God, that's awesome. Hey, Billy. Was that? Wait a minute. No, that's wrong. That's not me. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What what no, I, I can. Uh, I can open up the curtain now. Yeah, it's good to join you guys. Thanks for having me. It's all good. I guess um, I missed a successful deck builder as well when we did your deck out there. So I, I could not have done that without you. You, you were, well, it was actually your, your Hitachi miter saw was the reason that I asked you to help because I needed your saw as much as your know-how. <laughs> oh man. Uh, thanks for joining us, Bill. I, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. It's a rainy day on the mountains in the Blue Ridge mountains of North Carolina yeah. where, uh, where I am and where I live now. And, uh, Quite honestly, I didn't have much else on my calendar this morning, so I, I would have fit it in anyway. That's funny, and Paul, you've you've thanked me a couple of times even before we, well, before we went to air here this morning, and uh, you're a great friend, and I've done this with people I didn't even like, so <laughs> this is a thrill for me to be involved in a in a in a production uh, with people that I really like. So yeah, happy to be aboard. And I can just tell you right out of the gate, Paul's done nothing. I had to do all the heavy lifting. He's very complacent, lazy, can't get a hold of him. I'm kidding. He's, he's awesome. Paul's awesome. Yeah. 
Well, hey, Bill, as uh, Tommy went into his introduction, right? Tommy and I have been in sales. Oh, God, you know, well, you know, Bill, I mean, uh, I've shared my story many times with you, but Tom and I have worked together and been in sales most of our career. And this podcast is a little bit about the sales and leadership and, and hopefully help some people out there. Yeah. A little bit of knowledge. And uh, uh, you've been kind of through a, a, a bunch of different things, not only in, in the NHL and broadcasting, but you've started a business as well and had some experience, not only in successful business, but I know uh, we talked about the restaurant business as well. But just to start it off, I, I think I shared with you one time ago, a long time ago that uh, I, I listened to a gentleman talk about value programming. It's uh, what you are, where, you know, how you were when, right? And how through the ages, even when you're young, your value program with your family, and then there's little things along the way that kind of notch that or step it up or help you with that value programming. So if you don't mind, just ask a little bit about your growing up, your family life, because I know you've shared with me your wonderful family and just maybe share with the, with the, the podcast here the, some of that. Yeah, I guess the easy way to say this is that I became a professional hockey player and ended up playing in the NHL in spite of um, in, in spite of the little town that I grew up in. I grew up in a French-speaking town in Quebec. I actually grew up two blocks from the great Guy Lafleur, um, Hockey Hall of Famer, uh, passed away recently. Uh, but the English kids were never invited to play with the French kids on the town team. So I used to go and watch Guy Lafleur play. We're six months apart in age. Um, and I didn't start playing organized hockey till I was 12. And I was big enough and fast enough, had no hands, but I was big enough and fast enough that uh, I got scouted by the Chicago Blackhawks and made the, uh, a junior A team in the Quebec League when I was 15 and left home. Um, I grew up in a household with incredibly talented, compassionate, loving parents. Um, I, I can't even imagine having grown up in this little stinky paper mill town in such a rich environment at home. Um, Dad played seven instruments and mom played five and they, they were wordsmiths and always playing games and, and always driving the station wagon, you know, when the, when the team had to go from one town to the other. So my upbringing was really rich, but it kind of, it was really interesting how it, my mom and dad were criticized when they let me go to this training camp. The junior team was comprised mostly of 18, 19 and 20 year olds. I was 15 when I left home. So they were harshly criticized by their friends, but they thought I was mature enough so I don't know, most of my upbringing, I think the real, the real value lessons uh, about how to survive in a hostile environment happened after I left home at age 15. Awesome. Hey, Tommy, you mentioned his hands and there's a great uh, little story I, I'd like Bill to share with you when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. He called his brother. Bill, would you share that uh, yeah. story with him? Well, I have one brother. He's uh, younger. He was a good player, a good hockey player. And he was the first call that I made that my wife, Sissy, and I made to Nora and Pete, my brother, uh, Nora's his wife. And I said, wow, you're not going to believe this because I hardly believe in it. I got a call this morning and I'm being inducted into the broadcast wing of the Hockey Hall of Fame. And they were obviously really happy and congratulated me. And we chatted and partway through the conversation, Pete said to me, you know, Bill, I always knew your hands would never get you into the Hockey Hall of Fame, but I always figured you're, you're, uh, you're, uh, what the hell, how did he talk? Oh gosh, I can't even remember the punchline. 
my smooth talking or my my voice would give me a chance, but he knew my hands would never get me into the Hall of Fame. That's something he didn't have to remind me of because I was aware of that. Yeah. <laughs> well, the name, I mean, I, if I could interject, Paul, I mean, I, again, the, your book is, by the way, the book, Everyday Leadership, uh, Tightrope and Gorge. Uh, the, I mean, all this stuff about the tightrope and the gorge. I mean, I, I thought it was excellent. I mean, when I went through that book, I felt like I was living your life. It was really good. I mean, you thank you. You did a great job. I mean, I honestly felt like I was a professional uh, hockey player and all the adversity and everything you went through. Uh, it was excellent. And uh, I, I listened to it again. I don't know. It's just been, I listen to books all the time on my walks, but a couple of things that I picked up that really resonated with me. And I'm just going to jump off here a little bit, Paul, is, is this, we were talking about the desire to win. And you said in the book, it's really more about hating to lose. And I'm sitting there reading, I'm, I'm like, my goodness, this guy's got me figured out. I mean, because <laughs> when I'm in business sales, whatever, I mean, ping pong with my son, that is what I, I hate to lose. I'm a, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm crazy with it. And sometimes I have to harness that. Uh, but that's really, I want you to talk about this hating to lose well, I was, um, it's funny, I'd never really thought about winning and the desire to win until I was traded from the Philadelphia Flyers after our second Stanley Cup, traded to Washington, and they were an expansion team, second year expansion team, and I, I went down to Washington during the offseason and um, was driving around the Washington area on the chicken, potatoes, and peas circuit with Peter O'Malley, who was the president of the Washington Capitals, and we were driving along one day, going from one rotary club to another I guess, luncheon. I ate a lot of chicken, potatoes, and peas that summer. Um, but I was driving along, and Peter O'Malley said, you know, Bill, we, we want to fill this roster, our Washington roster, with guys like you Philadelphia Flyers, guys that just love winning. And I contemplated that, staring out the windshield, and at one point, it hit me. And I said, uh, Peter, can I suggest something? And he said, yeah, what? I said, I think you might want to think about filling the roster with players that hate to lose because everybody loves to win, but not everybody hates to lose. And it's only that hatred of losing that will propel you to levels uh, and, and, and to go on missions and to try things and to uh, face adversity that you otherwise wouldn't. So loving winning is easy. Who doesn't like to win, but hating to lose is what separates champions and championship teams from, from others. And the captain we had in Philadelphia, Bob Clark, I, when I started thinking about it, I never played with anybody that hated to lose more than him. I'm not sure how he ever slept at night after a loss. Uh, but that's, that's where the, the, the genesis of the hating to lose came from. Just, and, and as it turned out, our expansion team was horrible in Washington because we we didn't have nearly enough players that hated to lose. They were all guys that were let go by other organizations and made available in the, in the expansion draft um, because I think, because they didn't hate to lose. So it's an important element, but you know, the, the subtitle in my book, Tom, uh, crossing gorges on tight ropes to success, almost everything I've done in my life that, that I was successful at, I, there was a juncture, a point at which I felt like I was standing on the edge of a gorge. And this was the fear factor. It's like, wow, can I really do this? And human nature is when you come to the gorge, 
and you feel something pushing back against your success, human nature is to look for an easier way to get across the gorge than the only way you can see, which is the tightrope. And I was, I guess, driven enough, although freaked out at the same time and fearful at the same time, um, but driven enough to step out on the tightrope to try to make it to the other side. The, the gorge represents the fear, all those things that push back against us. Success is represented by the other side of the gorge and our persistence, our courage, our willingness to do the thing we're not quite sure we're going to be able to do is the tightrope. And the cool thing about the tightrope is you don't have to make it all the way across. You just have to make it one step further than halfway across and then you're not gonna turn around and go back because success is closer to you on the other side. But that's the analogy of the, and the, the cover of the book is me walking across the tightrope over Grand Canyon. Um, that was a long way down, man. No, yeah, people said to me, are you really on a tightrope over Grand Canyon? Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> no, it was, it was kind of Photoshopped. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that's, uh, and, and failure teaches you much more than success, you know, out of, out of, I'd never failed at anything until I was in my early 30s and, and acquired the rights for Georgia, Tennessee, and Alabama for a restaurant franchise out of Canada and thought I will just conquer the world by being successful with my first business venture. And it was an abject failure. And I fi filed corporate and personal bankruptcy and lost everything. My home, my marriage fell apart. Um, and I, I learned then I wouldn't have been as successful as I ended up being in my life without that failure. Nothing teaches you more than failure. Success certainly doesn't. Failure absolutely does. So uh, at the time, it was really difficult to go through. But I, I started learning little by little that it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I would not have been able to compete nose to nose and head to head and, and do the things that pushed back against me and that scared me that I was frightened of had I not gone through that. Bill, do you ever think about that DNA that you've got, though? I'm going to take it a little deeper. Like, I'm I'm listening to you, and I read your book, and you, your work ethic's amazing, honestly. I mean, you, you're just a machine, and you keep getting up, and you get beat up, and you keep getting up, and you go bankrupt. And I, 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 I remember all these stories in the book, and I'm sitting here thinking, mm -hmm. this guy is getting his butt kicked. He just keeps getting back up. Where, where did you get that? Did you ever, I mean, because I would deal with people sometimes and they don't have that. And then I deal with people like yourself and it's like, do you ever think about nurture nature? Like, where did you get that? Well, part of it's, you know, my, my mom and dad, you know, hereditary, you know, the, you mentioned DNA. Um, my dad was really a, a competitive, talented guy, but he never you know, he could have done anything. He was invited to New York by talent scouts. He could sing. Uh, he could run. He was a tremendous football player and baseball player, but he never left his hometown. And I always thought, I'm so much like dad. The only difference is I was willing to try it. I, I think dad never, never wanted to step out on the tightrope, if you will. Yeah, And that's the one thing that I was willing to do. And I think part of it came from my mom. Um, but I always had an idea, you know, when, when I would look at people that I consider to be successful, uh, looked at, at careers, looked at uh, the homes they lived in, maybe the cars that they drove, the success that they had, that's what I, I, I wanted to be like them. 
I never aspired to be mediocre, I guess, because it didn't look that appealing to me. Uh, I, I wanted to, I wanted to run with the big dogs. So I realized I was going to have to pee in the tall grass if I wanted to run with the big dogs. Uh, and that's what kept driving me. I, I, I guess I'd be classified as a super achiever, which is not to pat myself on the back, but I can remember from a young age, if I didn't come first in my class at school, I felt as if I'd failed. Now, people say, wow, it's great to be that driven. And Tommy, you just mentioned, you know, you work with guys that don't seem to have that drive. And, and I, I can tell you that it's at a young age, it's as much a curse as it is a blessing. Because, you know, perfection and success and, and championships and, and all of those, if they're not met, there's this feeling of having failed. So it, it's, it's great when people look from the outside in and say, wow, what an achiever. I just never failed in anything. Okay, that restaurant, that was the first time and the, and the only time really that I'd ever failed. But it's not as pretty on the inside looking out as it, as it is from the outside looking in. Um, I will tell you the two greatest, I think, human traits that lend themselves to success in any walk of life, especially as leaders, uh, the, the two human traits are enthusiasm and persistence. I think if you have those two human traits, you can navigate to almost any destination. And I'm, I'm a big believer. And I, I used to think like this even before reading Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, that you have to start with the destination, right? Where do you want to end up? And I've learned so much about, about starting with the end in mind. I remember a, a man uh, named Nat Eisenberg from New York. I used to narrate uh, videos for him when I was an actor living in New York. And he called me one day and he said, my nephew, Todd, he really wants to work for the NHL. Do you think you could help him? And I said, yeah, get him to call me. So I got a message from Todd and I just disregarded it. I didn't call him back and I didn't call him back for a reason. I wanted to see if he was persistent enough and if he really had the desire to call back. So about a week passed by and he called back. And this time I did call him back. And I said, what do you want to do for the NHL? And he said, anything. I just want to do anything. And I said, Todd, I'm really sorry. I can't help you. He said, what do you mean? You can't help me. I said, well, until you illuminate that candle on the horizon and give it some definition that's your destination, but you got to know where you want to end up. If you say, I just want to end up anywhere, it's not going to culminate with any kind of great reward at the end of the journey. Um, so he ended up getting a job for the NH with the NHL because he really defined what he wanted to do and where he wanted to end up. And I think that's such an important part. I, I will also say that when I've spoken to hundreds, thousands of people, not all, I, I think the largest audience I spoke to was 1,500 people. Most of the time, there were anywhere from 50 to 500. But when it was a, an entire company, and, you know, it was a command performance, so all, every, all the employees had to be there except those that kept the shop running, um, I would say, I would ask them a simple question. How many of you here today are in positions of leadership? And I always knew what I was going to get as the answer. I was going to get 5% five, maybe 10%. And the reason it was that small was people didn't consider themselves to be in positions of leadership unless they had a job title to match. And my message was the same to all of them. 
It's not about the job title. Most of leadership is about our, our abilities to influence other people, to influence their moods, their attitudes, their behaviors, their production, how hard they're willing to work, how long they're willing to work. And, and thus the, the concept of everyday leadership was born in my mind. It's, I said, you don't need a job title to be a leader. You, you, might, you might need the job title to get a raise, to get an increase in your salary, but you can impact and influence other people with so many different traits that you possess. You are the value-added component, which when added to the products you sell or the services you provide, give you the ability to push yourself to another level. And I will always believe that, that it's not about the job title. It's about our abilities to influence. And there are many ways we can influence. Man, that's good stuff. I mean, <laughs> you you uh, brought up some great points there. Paul, I know you've got some other other questions. Yeah, you know, we, we, we again, we're getting back into leadership. When, when you look at leadership, Bill, and being an, a captain of an NHL team, obviously you had to do some of this. What are, what would you say when you look at the NHL and, and captains and locker room leadership? What's the most common trait there? Uh, leading by example with work ethic, first of all. You, you, you'll never see a captain that's lazy. I mean, that's, that's counterintuitive, right? For a coach to appoint or a management to appoint. And, and similarly, players would not vote for, and there are two ways that people become captains in the NHL. Management either appoints, appoints the captain or they allow the players to elect the captain. Um, so work ethic is, is number one, I would say, leading by example, not only in games, but in practices and never, ever, ever quitting or letting anybody on the team, letting them down by saying, gosh, we've been skating forever. I can't, you know, I got nothing left. You know, I just, let's, let's shut her down guys and go to the coach and say, look, this is too much. Shut her down. I never did that. And believe me, I played for one of the most demanding coaches ever, a guy named Tommy McVie in Washington when I was a captain he used to practice us with full gear on for an hour and a half the day of a game, and we'd have nothing left that night. And, and I mentioned it to him in a quiet moment, but during practice, I never took a lazy step. And I learned so much about leadership from Bobby Clark, who was a captain in, in Philadelphia. So leading by example with work ethic is number one. Um, the greatest trait I think a leader can have is hockey or otherwise, is having the ability and the willingness to have the tough conversation. Bobby Clark was willing to have the tough conversation, you know, to take a player aside and say, look, you're not doing what we, what we need from you. What, what's, what's going on? And I learned how to have the tough conversations from, from Bobby Clark, because he was willing to have them off the ice in a quiet moment. Um, and he didn't always have them in a critical way. He had them in a, in a productive, constructive way very often. Um, I remember when I was uh, in a cast for the Stanley, in the Stanley Cup playoffs, uh, when we met the Boston Bruins the first time, we had a whole bunch of injuries. And I was just coming out of a cast. And um, Bobby Clark came into the, world, into the training room, and the guys were anxious for me to get back into the lineup, but I didn't think I was ready to play. I mean, I could hardly walk. I came out of the cast really early and 
um, Bobby came in, I was in the whirlpool and he said, how is it? I said, it's not very good. And he said, I just want you to know that I don't think we can win the Stanley cup without you. And he said, we've got so many injuries. You're one of them, but we got guys called up from the minors. Gary Dornhofer has got a separated shoulder. Bob Kelly's knee injury was worse than mine. And he said, I don't want you to do anything to jeopardize your career, but when you're ready to come back, we're really ready to have you back because I don't think we can win the cup without you. And people have said to me over the years, wow, talk about peer pressure. And I said, I, I didn't feel like it was peer pressure. He didn't raise his voice. He didn't threaten me. He didn't criticize me. He made me feel that I was vital to the outcome. And that's the difference between trying to push somebody and trying to pull somebody. He really knew how to pull players at the right time, saying the right words. I got out of the whirlpool, told the trainer to shave my leg and do the best tape job he could. And I could hardly walk. I got my gear on and I went out and hobbled around the warm up. And I was remember the warm up thinking to myself, I must look really stupid, you know, because I felt like I had a real exaggerated limp in my stride. And I felt like I had two neon signs, one on my back that said one legged man. And another one on my knee that had arrows pointing to my knee that said, flashing on and off, hit him here, hit him here. But I ended up playing game uh, four and we won. We lost game five in Boston and we lost games. We won game six in Philadelphia. And I had players over the years tell me that they still think I was the best player on the ice in game six of the Stanley Cup finals against the Boston Bruins. And, and I've said this forever. The, that story of me playing has nothing to do with how well I played. I do not think that I would have been in the lineup had I not been made to feel that I was vital to the outcome. And I, and I tell people in positions of, of leadership, or if they just want to influence people, if you want people to do important work, convince them that their work is important. And once people feel that they are vital to the outcome, they will do some amazing things. If they don't feel that their contribution is important, you can only count on them to do so much. You know, Bill, it, it, and, and I look at when, when Tommy and I have been sales managers, right? So I look at a sales manager as kind of the captain in a locker room, right? Right. Next step is the coach, which is kind of like the general manager in our business. So using the same thought process, and boy, you've uh, played for lots of coaches or uh, general managers, or coaches and and um, and and in your broadcasting career, you've watched successful coaches. Yeah. What would you say there? What's the common trait there? Communication, organization, and motivation. The good coaches. Now, I grew up in an era where it was all the motivation was done with salt, none with sugar. I mean, it was the whip. We were not allowed to feel good about ourselves if we failed, if we lost a game. Uh, we were only allowed to smile or laugh if we had won. So it was, a, forget about your self-confidence. You can only feel good about yourself when you win. So today's coaches, the better coaches today, are ones that communicate with their athletes. Let them know where they stand. Ask them what they can do to help. What do you need from me? Well, I need more ice time. Okay, wait a minute. You have to show me that you deserve more ice time. Base it. I will base your ice time on your performance. 
So it's, it's always the chicken and the egg when a coach is talking to a player, right? Well, I can't perform because you don't play me enough. No, I can't play you enough because you don't perform well enough. <clears throat> so communication, letting, letting your employees or your, your players know exactly where they stand. Uh, organization, they, they want to know that there's a plan and help them understand the importance of developing a framework for how you're going to proceed in your sales job or in your career. And then um, communicate to them, organize, and an attempt to motivate them to get there. Encouragement, right? I, I, I think it's true in any walk of life, whether it's sports or sales. If your staff, your sales force, if they feel that they're vital to the outcome, if they feel important, they'll work important. I believe we beat the Boston Bruins. See, we had a problem when we beat the Bruins in the early 70s. It was 1974. Here was the problem. We didn't have home ice advantage. And we hadn't won a game in Boston in seven years. And we were going to have to win one. 33 games we had not won in Boston. And, and we won the series. And I really believe it's because when our role players were called upon to do something important, we were able to do it because the senior players, the talented players, the Hall of Fame players on our team made all of the members of the team feel that their contribution was important. I'm not sure the Bruins did that. I think it was more clickish. I think Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito and Wayne Cashman and Ken Hodge and a couple of the other guys, kind of the, the nucleus guys hung around together and the other guys didn't feel that important. And I believe it's the same in any business organization. If somebody working in the back room right in accounting or that just you know confirms orders is never has never had their boss walk back you know the, the big boss find them and say you know you don't see the light of day but we can't do what we do out there without you doing what you do back here i just want to thank you for your contribution you're a real important part of our team and you have to say it verbally when i i worked I worked for the Flyers as a broadcaster in Philadelphia back in, and, and Jay Snyder was the president of the team, not Ed Snyder, Jay Snyder. And he was young. I remember the first year I worked for them. I walked through the receptionist office, walking into work one day to an office to get ready for a game. And there was a real nice can of exotic nuts with a cellophane wrapper around it and a bow and a card that said, happy birthday, Bill from your Flyers family. And I thought, wow, that's really nice. The next year there was another, Another can of exotic nuts that said, happy birthday, Bill, from your Flyers family. In the third year, I realized I was just a, a name in a computer that spit out on December the 19th, Bill Clement birthday tomorrow, so get the nuts ready, right? And I started to think that the most important, the 30 most important people to that organization lived, worked within a 30-second walk of Jay's office. And I thought if Jay had walked 30 seconds to each person's office when it was their birthday and spent 60 seconds telling them that they were an important player on their team, 30 seconds going back to his office, that represented two minutes, right? Times 30, that's one hour a year. To, and that lasts with you. When the president of the organization comes to you and say, you know what, haven't had a chance to tell you that we really appreciate you being on our team. Keep up the great work. We can't do it without you. Man. How does that feel, right? When, and and I, I, I believe it's so important to communicate it. You can't do it. Cards are nice. Exotic nuts are nice. <laughs> but but hear it, hearing it from, from the people that are in charge or your, your 
direct superior. So that's part of the motivation, right? So communication, organization, and motivation. Those to me are the three big keys to, to coaching um, and keys to, to management in general. I really so, believe that. So Bill, that's, that's excellent. And, and I can tell you that Paul, I worked for Paul uh, at one point in my career and uh, he's, he's, he hits home runs in all those categories that you just mentioned. And, and he's, he's really good at that, at all the things that you mentioned. So just a little kudos to Paul here on the, on the podcast, but going back to this, okay. I have a question. What would you tell uh, an up and coming manager that's uncomfortable with showing that empathy, let's call it love going out on the tightrope. In other words, they didn't have the upbringing or in their life, they didn't, they don't feel comfortable going up to another human being and being a human being and all the things that you mentioned, what would you tell that up and coming manager in terms of how to overcome that and get out on the tightrope? Hey, listen, this is a key to your success, critical to your, to, to your success. You've just got to go on the tightrope. I know you're uncomfortable. What would you tell that manager? I would tell him that there is only one way to overcome the discomfort. I will guarantee you, Henry Walenda did not feel great the first time he stepped out on a real tightrope. I don't know how old he was, probably a kid because it was the flying Walendas were the family. But the only way to overcome, that's, that's what the tightrope is about. You, you'll never make it to the other side in, de, in a developmental sense, right? As a leader, as a manager, unless you're willing to do the thing that makes you feel uncomfortable or do the thing you cannot do. But the message would be, you have to. It's the only way to overcome it. And my message would be, it will get easier each time you do it. But you can't just stay on the one side of the gorge thinking there's going to be an easy way if you're not willing to, to sympathize and to communicate. And also at the same time, look, when I say pulling people and pushing people, pushing people is negative-based motivational tactics very often, use of sarcasm, raising your voice, uh, embarrassing somebody in a, in a meeting or in public. Um, that's negative-based motivational tactics. A lot of, lot of managers, they, they won't be that severe, but they will stop at simply telling people where to go, what to do when they get there, how long to stay there, how much they're going to get paid while they're there, and then, okay, your day is done. So there's that element of connection that has to be achieved when you're a leader to know when your players are hurting, to know when they need a, a, a pat on the back. And when I've had people say, no, 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 you got to push them sometimes. I said, wait a minute, you have to, I believe you have to supply discipline and accountability, but that doesn't mean you have to push people pulling people is helping them feel that they're vital to the outcome. And if you can't bring yourself to do it, you will never improve in that area. So the only way I know to do it and to become better at it is to continue attempting to do it. And um, it goes back to that communication thing, right? That tough conversation sometimes is just having a heart to heart supportive conversation that makes some people feel uncomfortable because they didn't grow up in that environment at home. You know, maybe they weren't, uh, they weren't supported as much by their family. 
But the only way I know to get better at anything where you feel that, that hand on your chest pull, pushing back is to do it anyway. And that's the only way that I've been successful. Listen, the first time I was on TV, I was scared. I, I, think, I, I think I had to change my undies after the first period. I mean, it was, you know, the, the camera comes on and you realize there are how many thousands or hundreds of thousands. You know, my, my first real gig was on ESPN. And my audition for ESPN was a live game on the air. I was acting in New York. The phone rang one day and it said, would you like to audition for one of our jobs as color analyst? And I said, yeah, Brad Park, who was an analyst, had gone back to coach the Detroit Red Wings at the time. So they had an opening. And I thought, you know, a regular paycheck sounds a lot better than having to audition for my lunch and our rent you know, every, every week. Um, we were doing well, my wife and I both. My wife says she was a better actor than I am. Uh, so we were doing well. Um, but I said, yeah, I, I, I'd be interested in auditioning. What does the audition consist of? And they said a live game on the air. So myself and four other ex-players got live games on the air and I, I won the audition. But one of the reasons I won the audition is because I went to the executive producer and say, who do you want me to be? What, 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 in a, paint the picture of the perfect analyst for you. And he said, we, we want to educate the uneducated without offending the hardcore fans that know the answers. So I worked really hard at, at types of communications that I could drop some knowledge on, an, on a naive fan without offending um, a hardcore fan. But I, so I, I tried to start with a plan, right? I don't do very much in life without a plan. That's it's the organizational end of it. It's interesting you bring all that up because reading your book, so it starts with the vision, beginning with the end in mind. Mm -hmm. you, you, you dial that in. And then the thing I also picked up on your book is you were are, you were very meticulous in the plan and focused, and then you did all the work to, to basically be successful. And these are key components that people can't take lightly. And that, I would say you're saying it live here, but that's why you're successful. I mean, you, yeah. you, you do those things and then you dial it in, know your audience. What, what are you looking for? And like you mentioned, it's a simple conversation, but again, it's a tightrope. I mean, some people may not feel comfortable doing that, but you went out on the tightrope because down deep inside, you said it earlier, you don't want to lose in right. any, in any context of anything you do. That's what I'm hearing. Well, that's accurate. Um, but when I, you know, I lost everything in that failed restaurant franchising venture. I mean, ev everything. Um, I, I had no job, no career, no college degree. I was scared. I was broke. I was depressed. And my largest limited partner, I had a number of partners that were willing to invest in me. He was more concerned about my emotional state than he was the money that he lost in my venture. And I'll never forget his gesture. He came to my little apartment that I'd moved into after I moved out of the house that I lost um, and presented me with a copy of the book, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. And he told me how to read it, how to highlight it, how to, for, a, for an hour, like a 60 minute refresher read, how to underline the highlighted parts in red ink for a 20 minute read. And it really opened my heart, my mind, my eyes to human development and what can be accomplished 
we're all capable of improving, all capable capable of growing. But the the biggest takeaways from Think and Grow Rich, uh, number one, there was only one person in the world responsible for my success, and and it was me. And I've never forgotten that. I and you can't rely on anybody else. There's and and if you're in a situation where you find yourself blaming somebody else or complaining about something get out right i mean you are the only person in the world that's responsible for your success the second thing is i knew i was going to get out of anything exactly what i put into it so that's where the work ethic comes from and the organization Um, you get out of any endeavor what you put into it that's what you get back from it so I've never really relied on, on, on anybody else. Look, we, I worked on a team. The greatest thing about broadcasting was I was back in, the team, in a team sport, right? I had a partner sitting beside me, had a producer, a director, people in the truck, the tape operators. To me, that was, that was fantastic. Um, I never would have made it as a golfer or as a tennis player because it's an individual sport. Um, but I always knew that I was the one that was responsible for my success and, uh, and I never alibied and, and people that I call energy vampires who are, are blamers and complainers, they always have a way to justify a failure. Well, you know, he, you know, he, he did that or she did that or, or the, whatever, you know, whether it's the economy, the weather, it's always something, right? But it wasn't me. I didn't really fail. It was all of those things that conspired against me to, uh, to fail. So I'll never forget John Q bringing me the copy of Think and Grow Rich and me really starting to understand what I needed to do to be capable of some of the things I wanted to do in some of the places I wanted to go in life. And I'm, I'm a big, you know, you, you read the book, Tommy, so you know that I'm a big proponent of, of human development and um, really digging deep and, and doing the things that you have to do. But the, the greatest thing for me, I've never met a fearless person. One that's completely fearless, meaning you don't fear anything in the world. And when I've, I've done this with audiences, I okay, listen, pretend I got a magic wand. I'm going to wave it over you and you can do anything in the world you want. And I guarantee you're going to be successful. What would you be willing to try? Bungee jump, uh, jump out of a plane, end a relationship, uh, maybe attempt to start a relationship. And if you can come up with anything you would do after I wave the magic wand, ask yourself one question. Why are you not doing it? Right? What, what's, what's pushing back against you to keep you from doing it? And most of the time, you'll dig down and find out that there is a fear there. And what freed me of some of the fears that I had when I was a player, there were guys on every team that were trying to you know, poke your eyes out with their sticks every game. There were no face shields. I I played nine years in the NHL of my 11 without a helmet because when I left home at 15 and made the Chicago Blackhawk junior farm team, the first meeting, the general manager, John Choice said, okay, guys, first things first, anybody that wants to wear a helmet, go home. We're raising you to be NHLers and real men in the NHL don't wear helmets. So my, my last year in Philadelphia, before I went to Washington, I was out with the baddest animal in the hockey jungle, Dave Schultz, Dave, the hammer Schultz. 
And fortunately, we had a couple of drinks too many. And I say fortunately, because we were communicating on a different level. And Dave was willing to open up to me. And I was tired of I thought I was the only guy in the NHL that ever was like, scared to, to play against certain players that, you know, you, you wonder how some of them were raised, you know, Tom, you talked about my upbringing, and it was really a nurturing upbringing. I played with a guy in Calgary. I won't mention his name because it might, you know, if, if you ever listen to this, it might embarrass him. And I, and I said, you know, we, we were having a, a beer one night and I said, you're kind of psycho when you're out on the ice. I said, where's that come from? He said, oh, it came from my dad. I said, yeah, what did he do? He said, well, when I was 14, I'd be in bed at night on a Friday night when the bars closed in our little town at one o'clock in the morning, he would have bet two or three men that I could take them in a fight and beat them in a fight. And he'd bring them home and wake me up at one in the morning and force me to fight them on the front yard. And if I lost to them, he beat me with chains. So you wonder where, where some of the, the, the guys, uh, there were psychos on every team. Dave Schultz was just tough with his fist. He didn't kill anybody or hurt anybody with a stick. So I'm sitting there having a few drinks with him. And I said, hey, Davey, are you ever scared on the ice? And he looked at me like I had three eyes and four heads. This is not typical subject matter. I said, he said, what? I said, are you ever scared when you're on the ice? He said, yeah. I, I, I said, what? You are? He said, yeah. Really? I said, he said, yeah, I am. And think how scared I am. I got to fight the toughest guys on the other team. And he told me he wouldn't look at the schedule because when he saw the Bruins on the schedule, he knew he would have to fight Terry O'Reilly and he wouldn't sleep for two weeks leading up to it. So I realized then that courage isn't an absence of fear. It's how we deal with it. Right. And, and the element, the key element of success is coming to the gorge, which is the fear and stepping out on the tightrope. It's the only way I know to overcome things that make you uncomfortable and it gets easier the more you do it. And the feeling that is the feeling of accomplishment that one gets when they make it to the other side and step onto that, that success. We knew where it was. Wow. I got through that. I got through that tough conversation. That's not my nature to have that tough conversation, but I was empathetic, sympathetic, somewhat demanding. I had accountability, you know, in place. And I left that person in a better position than they were when I got there. Did you leave the situation? And did you leave that person that you were communicating with better than you found them? Everyday leaders leave every person in every situation better than they found them. Energy vampires that are not everyday leaders seem to leave every situation in person worse than they found them. Exactly. Hey, Bill, so when we talk about, again, the gorge and the tightrope, obviously in broadcasting, uh, you're sitting there with a, a camera and a partner and, and, and broadcasting into a camera, but then you make the jump into motivational speaking. Now it's different. Now you've got to go on a stage and you're talking to a group of people anywhere from, like you said, 50 to 1500. I know for uh, Tommy and myself, you know, when you're with a buyer, it's a one-on-one -on -one situation. An engineer, it's one-on-one. -on -one. But then there's the times you got to do presentations either to the leadership of the company or to your sales group in a sales meeting. How did you, did you have a fear when you first did that? And how did you handle that? <laughs> it's still the greatest fear I have in the world is public speaking. And I was always deathly afraid of it. But as an athlete, even as a junior player, you know, you're asked at this little sports banquet to say a few words, and it killed me. It was just, 
the, the feeling that I got, um, I don't know how much time we got, but the first time I got paid to do a speech, I was 20 years old playing for the Philadelphia Flyers. My agent called me, agents were brand new. He said, look, hundred bucks, you're going to get a hundred bucks. Just go and say a few words, do some Q and A. So I went in, in the Philadelphia area. It was like the school father judge. Yeah. It's just a father son breakfast. So I walk into this thing with nothing planned, right? And there's a dais that's a mile long and there are 20 people at the head table and there are going to be 10 speakers and I'm one of them. And I'm, I'm the second guy to speak. And I looked, who's the first guy? Well, it's guy, Tom Woodishick. And I said, who's Tom Woodishick? They said, well, he's a Philadelphia Eagles retired fullback. And I've, I said, could you point him out? They pointed him out and he looked like a broken down old guy. And I'm thinking, well, how bad could it be following him? From the time Tom Woodishick stood up behind the microphone to the time he sat down, people laughed and clapped and cried. And I went, oh, my God. And when they were announcing my name, I tried to slink under the table. And they said, now, here he is, you know, Bill Clement. It sounded like I was being introduced for a seat in the electric chair. I mean, I got up in front of this audience. I started to blah, 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 and I started to sweat, started to drip off my nose. And uh, one of the fathers that was emceeing was sitting. It turned out that Father Judge was the largest private boys' school in the country. And there were like 400 people at the father and son breakfast. And he started feeding me like answers and questions. And at one point, the room started to get really dark. I thought I was going to pass out. I left there with one commitment that I would never again do anything even remotely close to that without being prepared. I thought I could wing it. Tommy, you asked me earlier about preparation. That just drove the message home to me because I was an abject failure that day behind the, behind the microphone. When my wife and I moved from New York to Bucks County, when we wanted to start a family and, and, and wanted to still commute to New York, I was asked by a guy that I'd known for years to come and speak at a Chamber of Commerce breakfast. And I went, oh, God, Carmen, I hate speaking. You can't ask me to do that. He said, come on. You, look, he said, three years ago, you had nothing. You went through your three-year bankruptcy payout. Now you're, you, look where you are now. You're working for ESPN. You got this, you're buying your house. You, like you, you were broke three years ago. And now your, your trajectory is unbelievable. Just come and tell people how you did it. So I thought, wow, how did I do it? I'd never really reflected on the steps that I'd taken. So I put a 20-minute presentation that I was going to deliver from the heart and tell a real story about knowing that the restaurant was going to fail and about getting into the shower at 5.30 in the morning to get in for breakfast to make sure the bakers were doing their thing and starting and breaking down and starting to cry in the shower without any conscious thought of anything, walking back by the bypass the towel rack, go back into the bedroom soaking wet and climb into bed and pull the covers over my head and I'd be asleep in 30 seconds. That was my escape from depression was sleep. So I put this 20 minutes speech together, including telling them honestly about what it was like to be that depressed and that scared. And I called it from hero to zero and back. And for 20 minutes, and this was a breakfast, 275 people, I could have heard a pin drop in that room. And it was the, one of the most powerful experiences of my life because I'd only ever spoken trying to make people laugh, you know, after dinner speaker, this was different. 
I was asked to tell my story. And I left there with this feeling of euphoria, saying to myself, perhaps I have a message that could be of value, maybe of even monetary value to somebody. And I never trusted the broadcasting world because one executive that doesn't like you could mean the end of your career, you know, when that one year or two year uh, contract is up. So I set a goal of being nationally recognized as a, as a human development presenter or motivational speaker in the 90s. And I took office space out of the house. I'd be there at 6.30 every morning. Uh, I, took, I, I went looking for free gigs. You know, can I speak at your Rotary? Can I speak at your Chamber of Commerce? Every one of those scared me to death. I was at the edge of the gorge and still am before taking the platform in front of any audience. But I've learned that once I'm up there for 60 seconds, I just have to get by 60 seconds. It starts to get way easier because I know I'm not going to quit. I know I'm not going back that way to that front edge of the gorge. I'm going to continue on the tightrope and make it to the other side. But I'm still deathly afraid of public speaking. And it turned out to be a career that was really rewarding and, and that I wouldn't have changed for anything because it kept pushing me out on these damn tightropes. And it's, it's a funny feeling. It's, it goes from fear to exhilaration to satisfaction. But I've never, I would never feel the element of satisfaction unless I think, I, I believe, unless I felt the fear going in. What I'm, what I'm picking up on, and I've, I've done some, not, not at your level, but I've done presentations and various uh, sales-oriented uh, Tom is really good at that, but I've, I've been in a bunch of his meetings and Tom does just a great job of that. So. Well, I, I think about what you're saying and I, what I would tell the audience and, and, and make sure they understood what you said. Number one, being prepared. Again, this is a common thread with Bill being prepared. He, he spends the time thinking about the audience, the setting, what's the topic? What am I going to say? How am I going to, I mean, that, that is huge because that builds confidence. And then the second thing, which I think is critical that he said was be a human being, be a little bit vulnerable. I mean, to say yep. that you're crying in the shower, people are out there and they're connecting with you and they see, they see you as a successful person that, Hey, this guy struggles just like I do all of a sudden you've got them. And I've seen the opposite of this. Somebody gets up there and they're nervous and they don't, you know, let their guard down. They're trying to be perfect. And, and the next thing you know, you're tuning them out and you're playing on your phone or thinking about what you're going to have for dinner. But yeah. if you come out of the gate and you're showing volatility, vulnerability and saying, you know, I was a grown man crying in the shower. All of a sudden you've got me and now you're going to have them eaten out of your hand. So I, I, I tell my son this, you know, he, he goes into presentations. And he's like, dad, you know, what do I do? I'm freaking out. And I tell him, I said, who's your audience? What's the message? And you got to be a human being. Once you show some gratitude on the front end and show that you're human, I don't care who's sitting in the crowd. They're also human. So I think that's spot on bill. What you said. Uh, it's, it's, it's very important. Um, if I always felt that once I started to, to be compensated for speaking, that I owe the audience everything that's of value in an honesty sense inside me. So I had, I, I started to develop no, like this attitude of no problem, just ripping my chest open, you know, and saying, 
look, I, I've been successful in my life. And the reason I wrote the book is that I, I had this, I think this image of looks good in a shirt and ties on ESPN, he's a motivational speaker, all of these things. It wasn't always like that. You know, I, I did a lot of the things that I needed to do to get there. Um, but there was abject poverty and failure in the middle of it. But I think being honest with your audience is the greatest element of connectivity that you can have. Be honest, right? About your, don't, just tell them that you know what it's like to be them. And they know there's not one person in any, any audience that hasn't gone through a difficult time, right? I don't care whether it's at work or whether it's with family or whether it's with health or, or whatever, there's something going on there. So, you know, share the down times and then share the up times and try to share some of the things that led to the up times. And it's really funny. Public speaking is so much different than working on television. It's easy to tell how you're doing when you're in front of an audience and you know, I, I mentioned earlier being a perfectionist. So when I do an hour keynote address, I do it without any notes. And I do it with specifics on the company or the association or the audience that I've really worked hard connecting with them, but the uh, conference calls, taking notes, then getting them to check the notes to make sure I'm on the right track. I want everybody in the audience to know that I've taken the time to understand what it's like to walk a mile in their shoes. But it's so much different when you're when you're on a platform speaking to an, a live audience. It's easy to tell how you're doing. Just look at their faces, right? You can tell how you're doing by looking at their faces. On television, boy, there's this inanimate object. If you're on camera and you have no idea how you're doing, it takes a while before there's feedback and maybe a critic says, yeah, we're liking so-and-so. But when you get killed by a critic, it's like, oh, man. What am I going to do now? I remember my first year broadcasting, I had to do interviews in, in Minnesota. Uh, the U.S. national team, Olympic team, was getting ready for the 88 Olympics. And they were playing two games against this Russian select team. And I was asked to go down and do the interviews. And I thought, heck, it looks pretty easy. I'm just going to run down there and do interviews. So I blanked on Tony Granado's name, my first interview. I said, hey, Tony, what's a kid? Or where? And not in his name. I said, Tony. What's a kid from, and I wanted to say from Downers Grove, Illinois, doing in the Olympic program. There aren't many hockey players yet in the NHL from Downers Grove, Illinois. So I said, what's a kid from, and I blanked on his hometown. And I said, uh, where are you from again, Tony? Uh, uh, and he said, Downers Grove, Illinois. Well, my symptom for panic is sweat. So all of a sudden, sweat starts dripping off my nose. So I get finished with the interview. Our producer, Bruce Connell, says, okay, highlights coming out of break. Going to do the highlights. I had always worked in setups where there were two tape machines. One tape machine would roll a commercial or the highlight. The other tape machine would be ready to go right behind that first tape machine to roll a second highlight. While the second highlight was rolling, that first tape operator was re-racking to the third highlight. So they would go highlight, 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 right? We had one tape machine, which meant after the first highlight, I had to fill like on camera, I thought I was just going to do a rip of the highlights. So our producer, Bruce, he, he said, after the first highlight, he says, I'm looking down at the monitor, praying for the next highlight. And he says, look up, look up. And I'm thinking to myself, look, look up and do what? And I told this story at the Hall of Fame induction, Paul, you've already heard it. And I said, do what? 
like so I'm uh, all of a sudden he, okay second replay so the second replay runs now I'm I'm dripping sweat and he's look up look up and I was like okay I looked up and I don't know what I said none of it made any sense so by the time I get to the third replay He's got the key pressed down for our stage manager, female stage manager, and he's screaming at her, get a towel and wipe him off. He looks horrible. <laughs> he doesn't know he's got my key pressed down too. So he's screaming in my ear and her ear, get a towel and wipe him off. He looks horrible. Oh man. I remember after the game, I went to a pay phone. It was 87. So I didn't have a cell phone. And I called my wife, Sissy, and I said, I believe my broadcasting career just ended today. <laughs> it was so hard and so embarrassing. There's setbacks, right? You just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And the only way to make it better is to keep doing it. Then again, I learned it would have been nice if Bruce had explained to me that this was going to be a, knowing that I was a, an infant host, you know, that I'd never done that before. Might have been nice of him to kind of give me a fighting chance, but I wasn't going to blame him. I should have asked him, how's this going to work? Explain it in detail how this is going to work so I can be ready for it. Um, but that, that's the difference between television and, well, unless you have a producer screaming in your ear that you look horrible, you don't know how you're doing on television until it's all over. And a producer or the director said, gosh, we had a good game. Everything went well. Uh, but live audience, you guys know that when you're doing a presentation, want to know how you're doing? Simple. Look at the faces in the audience. Absolutely. So, Bill, we're we're almost out of time. Bring us up to date on some of your current projects and things that are going on in your life. Well, I find myself uh, being part of. I've, I've always enjoyed helping people, and until I read the book Th "Give and Take," um, I was always reluctant to tell people that my greatest joy in life was helping people because I was afraid they were going to accuse me of patting myself on the back until I separated my shoulder. But I read about these really famous people that said, my greatest enjoyment in life is helping people. So I'm on the board of three nonprofits, uh, one of which is our, I'm the president of our homeowners association. And I'm really active with our Philadelphia Flyers Alumni Association. And one of our daughters has Down syndrome and she's in a at Reagan. She's the, one of the greatest, one of the greatest bolts of sunshine and awesome. positivity in the world. Um, she's in a group home where we live in Waynesville and I'm, uh, I'm on the ARC, the board of the ARC of Haywood County, uh, former, formerly acronym for the Association of Retarded Citizens. It's simply since been rebranded, not quite politically correct to, to have that word in the, in the title. So I'm busy with, with helping people and, uh, and trying to do the best job I can on these boards with our, our, our Flyers alumni is incredibly philanthropic. Brad Marsh is our is our president, and there is no man like him on the planet. He is fantastic. So, uh, helping people and staying busy and doing as much as I can in the nonprofit sense. Outstanding, and I know you have some event coming up with uh, you mentioned the uh, health industry. Yeah, I, I retired from from speaking, but I was asked to come out of retirement for one keynote uh, from a friend. Um, the man that presented me with the book, Think and Grow Rich, my, my top investing limited partner, John Q, uh, John Quattrochi, thus the abbreviation to John Q. He's having his national conference for workout anytime. He started a um, health club franchises and uh, he has 
200 workout anytime franchises across the country and everybody's meeting in Atlanta in a couple of weeks and I'm going to be their keynote speaker so I've I've known about this for a few months and when I say I'm I'm working tirelessly to make sure I hit the ball out of the park for John Q after what he did for me that that gesture is something that really moved me and something that I've never forgotten and that's what giving is really about is being more concerned with somebody over there that's in trouble than than your than your situation so yeah i can tell you i can tell you bill uh, an absolute uh gift and honor that uh you came on today and uh paul and i uh we're gonna look back at this and just be forever thankful and i really do appreciate uh you sharing today and uh, again i felt like i kind of knew you going in with uh with the book, but you, you're, you're basically the same guy. And, and I'm, I'm really blessed. And I know Paul is too, uh, the fact that he's your friend and, uh, you've got all these, uh, nuggets of wisdom and you shared with the audience, Paul, do you have anything? Just, uh, boy, we could go on for a couple hours, Bill. I just, yeah. we haven't even gotten into the personal stuff that you and I and had so much fun. We're, uh, we're heading out on another vacation. And I think this one, maybe we might, uh, Bill and I might put a book together on taking our Persian friend to Ireland and all the stories we can. <laughs> with them. And let, let, let me just say this, Tom, um, I would do anything for Paul Bako because Paul is a giver and a helper and is a, a true everyday leader. In, in the truest definitions of how I described it, somebody that is enthusiastic, somebody that is persistent, and somebody that stands for all of the right things. He is an influencer. And uh, this was easy for me when Paul asked me, will you do this? I will do this anytime, and I will do anything for Paul Baco anytime. Now that I know you, Tom, not quite as much, but almost <laughs> as much, not quite as much. <laughs> Hey, you know, I agree. Paul is outstanding and uh, we'll save that for another day. I'll probably interview him and embarrass him, but he is, uh, he's a rock star in my world. And uh, I've called him up with some stuff and by the end of it, he makes it super simple and uh, gives me some clarity. If I didn't have him in my life, I would screw up things even more. Right. So Again, thanks for uh, coming on. We really appreciate it. And hopefully uh, the rest of your day is dry and not wet, but uh, enjoy. So audience, thanks for listening today. Spread the word. Uh, two old bulls, tell your friends, your family, subscribe, subscribe to the show and uh, spread the word out there. This is episode one. We're again, very blessed to have Bill Clement on and uh, hopefully we'll continue to bring some uh, good nuggets like Bill provided today. Apply these things in your life. Uh, go out on the tightrope. Have some courage. Bill did it. He's human just like we are. The difference is he had the courage to go out and do it and learn from it. And uh, outstanding uh, knowledge for all of us to apply in our own lives. If you have any comment, uh, our email is oldbulls at outlook.com old bulls at outlook.com thank you very much